Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Alex Sue, Director of Business Development at Evisort, a contract management company for in-house teams. Alex's career path is highly atypical, characterized by the twists and turns seen in many of the careers of our podcast guests. What makes Alex stand out, though, is his transparency and the community he has built through social media. By using humor and authenticity, Alex has been able to shed light on many of the wicked problems facing the legal ecosphere. Listen in as we discuss what he calls the, quote, failed experiments, close quote, that led to his current role, the self-awareness required to leave big law, and why not being detail-oriented isn't the end of the world. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Alex. How are you? Doing great, Stephen. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate you making the time. I'm here with Alex Sue, who has one of the more interesting career trajectories, is now works for Evasort, a contract management tech firm, which we're going to get to here in a little while. But Alex, you've got so many things in the hopper from your use of social media to your work at Evasort. Talk to us a little bit about the journey that got you to where you are today, because in some ways, it's a very traditional journey. In some ways, it's a very non-traditional journey. Yeah. So I, uh, I graduated from law school in 2010. I thought I wanted to be a trial lawyer. And so I figured I would take the standard litigation career path. I clerked for a judge. I worked at Sullivan and Cromwell in New York. But it was there that I realized that maybe uh, this path wasn't right for me. And so through a lot of different trials and trying different new, new jobs, I made the decision six years out of law school to make the pivot to legal tech. And so that was about five years ago. And so that journey has really been in part exploration, but also figuring out where I fit in. And I, I think that there are some differences between a, a standard career path in law versus working in tech and in startups where, where things are constantly changing. So uh, I've had the opportunity to work with some great people, some great companies. And so, um, you know, the world has changed a lot in the past few years, both from a tech standpoint, but also the pandemic has accelerated a lot of trends. So uh, it's been pretty exciting and, and there's no dull moments in, in, in working in legal tech startups. I'm sure, I'm sure there's not. You've been pretty upfront about your journey and, and your use of social media, whether it's on LinkedIn or TikTok or various podcasts you've given. And one of the interesting dynamics, and I've seen this now repeat itself over and over, is your discussion about going into big law, even though through your second year, you sort of knew it wasn't perhaps the right fit, but being driven by paying off law school debt. In terms of your connection with colleagues, and you've written and talked about this, does that resonate with people? Do you find other people doing the same thing? It certainly seems that way to me. Yeah, there's definitely are people who go into big law or, or go into law firms or traditional jobs in, in the legal industry. For some folks, uh, it's, a good, it's a great fit. They, they continue on the path and it's just a really smooth journey. There's another group of folks who I think don't quite fit in. And um, I would say I'm one of them. And, you know, we, we always try to figure out where we fit in. And I think this is true for a lot of people who go to law school because, you know, the things that drive you to go to law school, uh, I wanted to be a trial lawyer. 
when you get into the practice, the work is actually very different than you might imagine, especially if you've relied on TV or John Grisham books or you know TV shows like uh, like Suits or, or movies like A Few Good Men, uh, which is what I wait, did. Wait, I, wait, Suits is not a documentary. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, and and it's funny because you know I think when when we see the practice of law from from the media, it looks very different. And so there's so many people who who take out these loans and go to law school and, and take the career path that that they're they're told to take. And then suddenly they find themselves, and I found myself with a lot of student loan debt. So I knew that probably big law wasn't the right fit for me. And I, I knew that I also needed to pay off my loans. So I did that. And I'm, I have no doubt that there's many other associates out there who feel the same way, who are doing the job because they need to pay off their loans, but maybe want something different or something more. You talk in one of your, I can't recall if it was a podcast or one of your posts about making a list of particularly after your second year, about what you liked and what you didn't like. And what was it about practicing in big law that was not the right fit for you? You know, um, looking back now, I think it, it's really hard to say whether it was truly a good fit, because I think the job does evolve as you go from a junior level to a more senior level. But at the time, I was a junior associate, and I made this list because when I started working in big law, I thought it was such a great job from the outside. But when you got in at the junior levels, it was very demanding. It was very much focused on attention to detailed work. It was focused on, on solitary work like legal research and, and drafting motions uh, because I was a litigation associate. And so those were kind of things that I wasn't really, I didn't go to law school to do those things. I wanted to, to work with people. I wanted to go to court, make an argument. But instead, I was, I was focused on um, just being in an office and just doing research and solitary work. So I was like, okay, well, let me see if this is right for me. Let me write a list of things I've done in the past. I'll, I'll do one column of things that I've been good at and, and, and done well with. Uh, I'll, I'll create another column that says, uh, you know, these are the things I struggle at. And so I had a good sense of my strengths and weaknesses after making that list. And I realized that the role as a junior, at the junior levels at a big law firm, all of the things that I was responsible for doing were things that I was not good at. And none of the things that I was good at uh, was involved in, in the job description. So that's when it was, it was pretty eye-opening that and I thought, well, maybe I should do something else. And so you, you, you moved to San Francisco and went with a plaintiff side law firm for a while. And that, that wasn't the right fit either. And you made a decision to move into legal tech. That's right. Um, it, it's, it, it looks clean from the background. Like when I told you earlier, you, know, you, you try some things and you make the jump. But when I was going through it, I had decided that I would... I set myself some financial goals before leaving big law. And I said, okay, if I'm going to do another job, it's going to be something different. And that coincided with me moving to California. And so I joined a plaintiff side firm. It was smaller. Uh, it was different types of work. And although it wasn't a good fit, I, I got out a lot of that at the job because I learned, I saw firsthand how legal technology could empower lawyers in the practice. And in particular, that, that firm that I worked for, uh, they went up against multiple large defendants, large firms representing defendants, and they were able to do a lot with, with a very few headcount. And so I saw the power of legal tech. And so when that didn't work out, I, I kind of threw my hands in the air and I said, well, well, if I, if I can't figure out a good job, maybe I'll create my own job. And I opened my own solo practice. That lasted for about a year. And, and while it didn't work out either, um, I learned a lot from that experience. I learned that uh, I truly did want to do um, sales and marketing. I really did enjoy working with people. And so I was at the time, this was six years out of practice. I'd done several jobs and, and actually not, had, had not done that great at them. 
but I realized that I had this legal experience, uh, this diverse legal experience. I was living in the Bay Area. I knew tech, legal technology uh, held a lot of promise. And so I, I kind of made the jump to an early stage legal tech startup because I was betting that my legal experience combined with my desire to work with people, maybe my strengths in working with people, I figured that would be a better place for me. And, and I was willing to, to start from the bottom once I made that pivot. And I want to talk about sort of the, the movement into legal tech and sort of the differences you find from working in lawyers and, and what sort of advice you give to people who may want to do the same thing. But you've, you've been sort of remarkably candid and upfront about this journey and about what's worked and what hasn't worked. And you've got a, a big following on social media and you've got a num- lots of people that sort of pay attention. What sort of feedback have you gotten through sharing that candor? I, I would assume it's resonated with people and has helped other people along their, their own journey. Do you get that sense? I do, and it really has. You know, when I, when I made that jump, um, I knew I was burning some bridges in terms of career path. I knew that it would be hard to go back to the practice of law. And perhaps I might have uh, written off going back to big law completely. So I was at a point where I, I knew I had very little to lose by doing things in a different way. So this was in 2016, and I was basically an entry-level salesperson for an e-discovery technology startup. And so I started posting on social media just because I thought it would help me in my job. They say that it helps to, to do social selling if you write about legal industry trends or, or post articles. But it was on LinkedIn, and I didn't actually have a lot of traction in the beginning when I started posting content. But then I quickly pivoted to telling stories from my career journey, why I left the practice of law, you know, my experience working in big law, trying to find my way. And as I started posting those, that type of content received a lot of engagement and people would comment with their own stories. And so that was probably very early on when I realized that the story itself, the journey of moving from, from law to legal tech, that was something that people really resonated with and were interested in. So I continued to do that. And I, I've been doing that for probably four to five years now. A lot of people find it really interesting because I do think that a lot of lawyers are frustrated with their current roles and they want to see what's out there and they want to hear the stories from people who have navigated that. The other thing I think that's remarkable about your use of social media is you use humor enormously well, particularly your TikTok feed is, is, is always great use of satire. How does that resonate? How has that worked for you and how does that medium connect with people that's different from LinkedIn or a more traditional social media outlet? Yeah, I, I would say that it's, it's been the biggest change for me, uh, an adjustment for me, because when I started off on this journey of creating content, I figured I'm a writer. I, I'm more text-based. I don't feel entirely comfortable behind a camera, which may come as a surprise. But I knew that um, when I started posting on LinkedIn, I made this one video one time, and it was kind of poking fun at how they never teach you anything in law school about contracts except for general principles, and they don't prepare you for actually the the clauses. So I did that in part just because I thought it was funny. I work in the contract technology space. And when I posted it, the reaction was intense. People really liked it. They, They wanted to see more of it. And so I think over time, as I started to post more videos, and, and by the way, these videos were recorded on Zoom and edited with iMovie and just very basic, low quality videos. I started doing that over time and people would tell me, I like your content, but your videos are the thing that I, I really come for. I really, really enjoy them. So I started putting out more content that were videos that were short, 
that were kind of humorous. And, and some of the things I learned over that at that time is that number one, you never really know what resonates with people, but listen to them because they will tell you what they like the most about your content. So I listened to them and they said it was video, it was humor, it was something that along the lines of, of poking fun at, at, at some of the, the silly traditions that we have in our, in our profession. So it was only a matter of time before I went on TikTok. And then when I went on TikTok, I, I just continued to do the same thing. And I'll share with you that one of the reasons why I find TikTok really meaningful beyond my career and my job and, and why I think people resonate uh, with it is because I'm able, if you have the ability to be funny about something, you can speak some truths that really, that's really relatable. So for example, uh, some of the frustrations people have about how the legal industry operates, whether it's the billable hour, whether it's how people are made partner, how there's challenges with diversity. I think these are important topics, but if you can be funny about it in a way that doesn't take yourself too seriously, that message I think is, is carried more effectively. So, so I've been continuing to do that. I, I, uh, it's a lot of fun for me, but people um, encourage me to, to continue making them. Yeah, no, I think they're amazing. I mean, you talked about speaking truths and you posted a couple about, you mentioned diversity in law firms and uh, TikTok in response to the reaction you got to that. You seem to have struck a chord with that. Talk a little bit about the reaction to that and how you sort of filtered that from your own perspective. Yeah, you don't fully know what will resonate with people when you create content. Um, we all have our own stories. We all have our own paths. And I think that we can all relate to one another because a lot of our stories are tied together, especially in the law. Everyone goes through law school. It's a challenging process. Many of us are, are the first lawyers in our families. Many of us, for, for example, uh, my parents were immigrants. I never imagined I would be a lawyer. And so I think that story, that part of my background has always resonated with a group of people who, who were in similar positions. So when you create content, when you create videos, it's always funny when I put it out, but the real message is it can be hard when you don't have the network. I think it's hard when you, when you have trouble finding mentors and sponsors within a firm to move up and progress. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why there's challenges in, in diversity uh, in law firms. So, so when you put out that content, when I put out that content and, and make jokes about it, on the one hand, it's funny, but on the other hand, it really speaks to a very large segment of our profession where you know maybe today they're struggling and trying to make partner but maybe they've moved on and they've gone in house they've worked in government because the law firm environment was not friendly to them and their background there's a there's a reaction that people have to that and so we all are connected in that way and i don't think it's it's really limited to people who struggle in in law firms i think it's 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 anywhere so by putting out that content it brings the community together of like-minded and like-thinking types of people and it's really been something that's just resonated with folks that I never imagined would resonate at this level. That's fascinating to hear because it's such an interesting way of communicating on very difficult topics. I mean, these are, these are not easy conversations to have or to, or to get into depth. And your use of humor and satire brings, I think, a very interesting approach to that. So I'm glad it's resonating with people. Yeah, and I, I can tie that to, um, you know, we, we're talking about diversity, but even innovation is another challenge, right, in, in law firms and in our profession generally. And I found that you can come across as being preachy when you start posting written content about why innovation matters, you know, the challenges with the billable hour, how law firms and in-house lawyers should adapt. So, so I think that there's a lot of challenges around, around sharing that message. But when you are funny about it, when you make a silly video about it, 
it's almost as if people say, oh, this is harmless. This is just somebody joking around. And if you put out the content highlighting the problem, it encourages the community to, to post solutions or, or things that have worked for them. So it's almost like the content is the first step in starting a dialogue and starting a community discussion about how things can get better. It's definitely more about the general problem in the general community and, and, and the folks who are, who are out there more so than the creator of the original content of the first message in that discussion. Let's talk a little bit about your move from being a, maybe not traditional, but being a practicing lawyer into the world of legal tech. You talk about how your position at the firm in San Francisco showed you the potential of legal tech. Talk to us a little bit more about that. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so th that firm I worked for, uh, we, I worked for a partner who leveraged cloud-based e-discovery. So he was able to not have to rely on a large team of lit support folks or of junior associates going through documents or you know senior associates or counsel filtering documents through. He was able to do a lot and, and leverage technology to quickly find evidence in the record. And so, he, you know, when I saw that, I saw the potential there. And, and you know, he also leveraged other tools, uh, some of which might be somewhat help, less helpful. Um, you know, he, he experimented with a lot of different legal tech. So I saw that this would be a larger trend because I saw how technology was just a dominant force. This was in 2014 but at the time. And so this was a little bit, a little bit while ago when, when legal technology was still emerging. Technology was still uh, kind of emerging generally. and I saw the impact that it could have on a lawyer's work. I didn't know what would come up. I, I didn't know if it would necessarily become widespread, but I, I saw the potential and I saw that I was in a unique position to kind of bridge both of those worlds, both the technology side and the law side. I didn't have any technical background. I don't know how to program, but I knew that communication and working with people that I wanted to go into a position that was uh, along the lines of sales and marketing because I saw, I feel like I saw the potential and I wanted to be the person to, to bridge that gap between lawyers and technology. What's the difference in working in legal tech? You, you now work for a firm involved in contract management solutions. What's been the change in dynamic? For those people who may be interested in legal tech, culturally, how is it different? It's different in a few ways. And I, I think part of it is because it's technology. Uh, another one is because it's it's more of an upstart uh, startup type of environment. So the main differences are that number one, I think in law firms especially, there is a focus on creating perfect work product. And the culture in startups and in, in tech startups is that you wanna put out something quickly that may have mistakes and then iterate as you learn more from your, your clients or from the marketplace. So it's almost a, more of a trial and error type of approach which would be kind of crazy if you, if you were at a law firm and you're a junior associate and you say, hey, uh, you know, partner or hey, client, I'm going to create this typo-ridden, imperfectly researched brief and, and send it over. And, and, and if you don't like it, tell me what you don't like, and I'll just keep iterating on it. I think that would be, that would just be... <laughs> you'd be I can't think of it working that way, yeah. I'm not sure that would be the best approach. But in, in tech, it's, it's flipped. Um, in, in startups, it's flipped because if you do take the time to create something perfect, it creates a lot of risk because you don't know if that would resonate with the market or the client. So the best thing to do, um, and we talk a lot about this in startups, is to create something called a, a minimum viable product, something quick and dirty that you can put out to the world, get feedback on it, and iterate. 
And, and, and that's something that I think resonates more with my personality. If you see my journey, um, I've tried a lot of different things. I've messed up things. I do things that aren't perfect and I make mistakes, but uh, I always try to adapt. And by adapting, it's really helped me ride a, a few different macro waves, like the rise of legal technology, the rise of legal operations. There's a lot of these things that if you put yourself out into the world and mess things up, dirty up your resume, you're going to be able to find some, some pretty incredible opportunities. So that's the approach I've taken. And I think that's something that if for folks who are thinking about making that type of move, you're going to have to get used to that culture shift. You mentioned the rise of legal technology and the rise of legal ops. Those are, those are related, aren't they? I mean, that the rise of legal operations is driving usage of technology and the usage of technology is supporting legal ops. You live in that world. Is that right? Or are you seeing something different? That's absolutely right. I think the rise of legal ops is a, is a bigger trend because, as you know, there's a lot of work out there that needs to be done um, there's, uh, in terms of legal work. And firms get, you know, when firms handle those matters, it gets expensive. And so companies and corporate legal departments are trying to figure out the best way to, to allocate that work. And so sometimes lawyers are not, professionally trained lawyers are not in the best position to figure out how to optimize the process of doing that work or the costs associated with completing that work. So there's been a growth in this position called legal operations to help support legal teams, to identify areas where you can get inefficiencies, whether it's bringing matters in-house or outsourcing matters to lower cost providers. And so one of those providers is legal technology, but, but there's also alternative legal service providers. There are different types of firms that, that, that can handle the work. So this rise of legal operations really has changed the way that, that legal work gets done, and it's had a huge impact on the legal ecosystem. Some of your listeners may be familiar with a, a lot of talk about more investment flowing into legal tech or uh, alternative legal service providers growing and, and really having a, increasing their market share. These are all symptoms of a broader trend that the, the legal department of the future is becoming more efficient and providing significant ROI for corporation and the enterprise in general. And with, within that, contract management, if I can use that as sort of a broader term, strikes me as hitting its stride, that some of the companies have been around for a while, but it seems that the pace of adoption is picking up dramatically. First, is that true? And secondly, if so, is that a result of sort of legal operations? Is it driven by the pandemic? What are the variables that are affecting that? I think it's a combination of factors, and you're absolutely right. Right now, contract technology is a very hot space, and I think there's a few different factors that are all converging right now. The first is that contracts apply to all companies as opposed to other types of legal technologies, say, that are, I don't know, targeting law firms like timekeeping or practice management. Every company has contracts. So the market size is large, which encourages a lot of investment from venture capital firms. So I think that you're, you're seeing the market size and the impact be, be huge, and it's being recognized by the market. And that's playing one role. Uh, another one is what you mentioned about legal operations, the rise of legal operations. And it means that they've identified contracts as a key area where you can really become more efficient. You can really see a lot of ROI. And so they're investing in those types of technologies. And so you're seeing growth on the legal tech company side because they're getting more revenue from corporate legal departments. I think that's the second trend. And then the third trend, there's a lot, I think, that's tied to the ability of how you price 
software. So, so a little bit of background. The best companies have subscription pricing models and contracts lends itself to having a subscription ongoing type of pricing because the need is always going to be there. If you compare that to something like eDiscovery, which has its own challenges, eDiscovery is more episodic. And so it lends itself more to a matter-based matter or usage-based pricing model. And so if contracts is aligned more with the subscription type of model, uh, that's a very powerful driver in the valuation of these companies that have that, that service contracts. So, so you're seeing a lot of these factors come into play. This is why, I mean, they're all, they're all related to one another. This is why VCs are very interested in contracts companies. This is also why you're seeing interest from, from larger content storage companies like Box, Dropbox. I know DocuSign is very much moving into the contract space with a couple of acquisitions. So, so these are all factors that come into play and, and as to why contracts is exploding right now. With, uh, with that explosion, obviously your team is participating in that. How do you differentiate yourself from what's a relatively crowded space? What's, what's your value proposition? I think that when you look at contract companies in general, um, it's easy to say I'm a contract management company, but each individual company is focused on a different part of contracts. So I think where Evisort is different is that we have the ability, our technology has the ability to automatically extract information from contracts. And that is a huge driver of value for companies that may have many contracts stored in their multiple repositories. Uh, they may not know what's inside of their contracts. And so the ability to automate that process creates huge value. There may be other contract companies that focus more on the generation of contracts or on um, you know, automating the review of contracts. So you know, a lot of companies do a lot of different things, but where Evisort really sets itself apart is the ability to automatically pull out contract language. And, and that's because there's proprietary AI. There's also a heavy investment into data science. And uh, there's a lot of lawyers on staff who can help train uh, the algorithms to recognize information. So, so that's where I think we as Evisort have set ourselves apart in the market. And if you look at other successful contracts technology companies, you will find that they have some strong value proposition for a unique segment of the market or a unique part of contracting. Talk to us a little bit about the sales cycle for technology into legal departments, or, or I suspect that's your, large, your largest market is legal departments as opposed to law firms. But the sales cycle is, is not the easiest, right? So what are the challenges you face in getting businesses, even with a clear ROI and value proposition, to sort of embrace and adopt and actually use the technology? It's a long sales cycle. And I'll probably create um, two separate categories. There are, uh, we'll call them early adopters who do have the funding, who have a built-out legals operations department that can acquire technology quickly. Um, and so that's one part of the market that I think is smaller. Uh, it's growing, but it's smaller. Most corporate legal departments are used to spending on outside law firms. They're not used to investing in technology, which means they don't have budget for technology and often have to piggyback of, off of other departments to acquire technology. That draws out the sales cycle. And so for earlier stage startups, I think that the challenge is, okay, we got to find uh, the early adopters, the ones who are, have, have a more robust process for buying technology. And over time, we'll nurture these later adopters 
who may not have budget, who may not understand how to acquire and measure the value of technology. Um, and then as over time, you know, I truly believe that more are becoming like the early adopters because you have the rise of legal operations, you have legal technology becoming more high profile. I think GCs are thinking, and this is a broader trend, which is what should be the function of a legal department? Uh, I think in the past, it's been somebody who just provides legal answers to the business, but we're starting to see GCs, CLOs, legal departments become more of a business partner to the business to enable revenue, to really move away from the perception that they're just a cost center. So these are all, again, trends that are going to drive more folks to the, the early adopter type of mindset. And, and this is just going to, to drive more legal technology. As you use legal technology to enable that change process, there, there, there's a clear component to that. But as you're talking to whether it's early adopters or these later stage adopters, one of the challenges is the change process among lawyers and among the other people providing legal services. Does your team participate in advising on that change process for the potential purchasers, how they actualize the value out of that? Or is that something that's left to the devices of the purchaser? So it depends. Uh, we do provide a lot of that at Episort. Sometimes we'll also partner with experts in change management and who have expertise in implementing uh, and helping these organizations adopt technology. And sometimes these legal departments have really built out functions where, where they've done this before or they have team members who have done this before and can avoid the pitfalls ahead of time. And so there's no one model that works for everyone. Uh, I do think that the more complex, the larger the organization uh, that's, that's trying to adopt technology is, the more you're going to want to have experts, whether external or internal, guide them through that process. So it really comes down to, to the size and scope of the organization, but, but definitely it's a huge part of the success of adopting legal technology. And what kind of return can people expect from implementing a system like yours? You talked about an ROI, sort of what's the quantifiable value being offered? So that's, that's a great question because there are several and some are easier to measure and may have a lesser impact. Some are harder to measure, may have a larger impact. And so I can share just on Episort's side, because we automatically extract information from contracts, we can directly pull out dates, expiration dates. And, and that's something actually many companies are not even tracking or they're tracking manually. So that's the simplest one because we can track, okay, how much time are you saving by having technology find these dates as opposed to a person? But then we can also tie to it avoiding accidental auto renewals on your vendors. So for example, a lot of contracts now are recurring, they auto renew, but you can provide notice that you wanna terminate ahead of time. If you avoid that accidental auto renewal, there's a dollar amount that's tied to it. And this is a big problem among legal departments because it's not often clear whether it's legal or procurement who's in charge of these, this type of, uh, tracking this type of spend. So that's, those are some of the easier ways to measure it. And it's extremely effective in, in helping legal get that budget because you can work with procurement to figure out uh, okay, if we get ROI from this, it might make, might make sense to invest in a, in a solution like this. But on the other side, there's a bigger impact, I think, that isn't really discussed and is harder to measure. But if you can extract information from your legacy contracts, you may recognize a lot of things that you, you wouldn't before. You can maybe extract out payment terms that can help with uh, assessing whether there's opportunity to increase cash flows in your company. You may look at royalty terms or revenue generating contracts to assess, do we need to change these older customer contracts to drive more revenue into the company because they've got some favorable 
agreement that, that, that was made 10, 20 years ago. So there's a lot of impact that legal can have by extracting data from contracts that adds to the revenue of the company. And I think that's a more interesting use case because it goes along the trend of enabling GCs and CLOs to become partners to the business, to be a strategic value, as opposed to just being somebody who just identifies risk. So I think th those are kind of um, the ways that we would value or, or evaluate ROI. Great. In the couple of minutes we've got left, I want to turn back to sort of the career path. What I'm sure you get asked this question because of your presence sort of all the time from lawyers or people who want to be lawyers or are in the process of thinking through their career. Are there a couple of sort of key pieces of advice you give people as they're thinking about their career path in what is an increasingly diverse legal ecosystem? There's so many more options out there for people now than there used to be in, back in my day. What, where do the advice you give people to navigate that challenge? It's always interesting to me to, to give advice because I feel like I haven't figured things out, but, but what I can do is share what's worked for me. And I think the biggest one is recognizing what you're good at and what you want to do versus what you feel like you should do. And I think a lot of lawyers feel like they should be doing things. They should be going to get this job, to line themselves up for that job that pays X amount minimum, and always worry about what they should be doing. I think you really got to look back at your own personal history, just like when I created that column of two things, uh, two columns of things that I was good at and, and what I was bad at, and really think through what your superpowers are, where your talents are, and then head in that direction. And maybe that means that you have to go outside the traditional legal career path, but maybe not. I think leaning on your, your strengths will always put you in, the, in, in better and better places. And I would say from my personal experience, figuring that out was huge. But second was, was being willing to take a step down in terms of whether it's compensation or where you are in the career journey, like you know, maybe a lower entry level position that's aligned with your strengths. I think that's really helped, as well as joining an industry that's growing. Because if you combine those two factors, you can grow pretty fast and do work that, that's really meaningful. So that's what I would say. And I would obviously, you know, that, that's been my experience. I don't know if everyone has that experience, but I've seen that pattern, not just with myself, but with, with a lot of people I, that, who are successful and I admire. So, so that would be the advice I would give. That's great advice. And it's been fascinating to listen to you talk about your own career path. And it's going to be fascinating to, to watch and see where you go in the future. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. People can find you at evasort.com, I presume. Look for you on TikTok, on LinkedIn. I presume Twitter, uh, all the social media outlets, because it's uh, you're someone worth following. It's great. Thank you so much. Well, that's very kind of you to say, and thank you for having me uh, on this show. I think it's wonderful what you're doing. And uh, yeah, really glad to have this conversation. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.